Content warning. The Silence Voices Stories of MST podcast discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics related to military sexual trauma. We want to provide a safe space for survivors and those seeking to understand these issues better. Please be advised that the content may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is in need of support, please consider seeking guidance from a mental health professional or a trusted resource. Welcome to Silence Voices, Stories of MST, hosted by Rachel Smith. This podcast is dedicated to giving a voice to military sexual trauma survivors. Each week, we'll bring you powerful stories of courage, resilience, and healing. Join us on this journey to create awareness, spark dialogue, and drive change within the military community. It's time to break the silence and amplify the voices of those who have been silenced for far too long. Listen in and become a part of a movement that's shaping the future. This is Silence Voices, Stories of MST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Silence Voices, Stories of MST. I'm your host, Rachel Smith. Today, we're sitting down with a truly remarkable individual who, despite facing unimaginable challenges, stands strong as a true warrior. We explore the unique journey he had of joining the military at an older age and celebrating the seemingly small victories that were, in fact, monumental steps toward change. In our candid conversation, our guest opens up about the unspoken battles that followed his traumatic incident the silent struggle of choosing not to report out of fear of ridicule and shame. Through trial and error, Tyler discovered the power of various therapies and coping mechanisms on the road to healing. Along the way, he realized the profound impact his story could have on his daughter's life, giving him the strength to persevere. Join us today as we navigate through the complexities of mental health, triumphs over adversity, and the unwavering support that became the cornerstone of his journey. A super special shout out to his incredible wife, a true ally in the fight against the shadows. So stay tuned for a conversation that transcends silence and empowers the warrior within. If you'd like to reach Tyler and send him a message of encouragement or tell him how his story resonated with you, stick around till the end of the episode and I'll tell you how. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm I'm doing uh, okay today. Today has been an okay day. I did want to say thank you again. It's so difficult to put yourself out there and speak about a trauma like this. It's deeply personal. And my listeners and I are so grateful for you coming on the show and being an open book like this. Thank you so much. Not a problem. And like I mentioned earlier, uh, thank you for this podcast as well, because you're doing incredible work by providing, like organization says, providing a voice to the voiceless. So thank you for for doing that as well. My hope is just to help people feel heard and seen and not so alone. So do you want to share about the military? I I got a little bit late of the start than compared to others a little bit. I joined when I was uh, enlisted when I was 26. 
there's kind of an answer I give to the Air Force when I was, you know, you usually have your recruiter, maybe your first base when you get there. It's usually always, you know, asked of you, what were your motivations to uh, to join and everything. So I kind of had a stock answer that was, you know, kind of I varied from at times was, you know, I just wanted to get my college, you know, my, my master's paid for because I already had um, received my bachelor's before I came in and worked in the criminal justice field. That was one answer I gave, you know, I just wanted to, you know, do something different. But, you know, the real answer, you know, was kind of a twofold. One was I wanted to kind of get away from my childhood environment. I, I, I kind of grew up just outside of Flint, lived there all my life up in a being sexually abused as a child and very distrusting environment not a healthy family environment very distrusting of family at that time being able to be pretty resilient i look back on and kind of was able to suppress a lot of that stuff growing up was able to mold myself into kind of you know big model looking back at it being able to model some of my behavior from you know, what was considered typical and, and normal behavior. And so I was able to play sports and, you know, I was involved in some other activities and had a relate, you know, on and off again relationship. And so I was able to kind of go through life relatively unaffected, but there was always that deep seated untrusting feeling of wanting to kind of get away, but school and was something I wanted to kind of finish up with. And once I think the great recession hit in 2008, um, that was also a propelling factor for me. And I also had a, um, my grandfather who I looked up to growing up, he was a Korean war veteran. You know, he had a lot of good qualities that I wanted to emulate those two big factors. My grandfather just wanted to get away from my childhood environment. So the people from where I grew up at were two main factors for why I decided to enlist. But that's, you know, like I said, that's not something you go in and tell your recruiter about. And, but those were the two main reasons. Mm-hmm. That's a really difficult decision for an 18-year-old to make, let alone someone that's in their mid-20s. But it's true. You do have all these opportunities in front of you that you might not have at home. With that being said, what were your expectations when you joined? Yeah. So I guess the positive thing about that is, you know, I came in kind of feeling like I had a blank slate in regards Mm -hmm. to I really have a lot of expectations that I really didn't have a support system in place in regards to knowing what to expect in the military. Per se, my grandfather had already passed away by that time. I didn't grow up in a military background because of that. And I didn't really come in with a lot of preconceived notions of what military life was going to be like. I remember just wanting to personally just evolve. You know, I wanted to grow as a person. I wanted to kind of, I, the one thing I, I, Will say about the military is I I already came I did come in with the belief that you know it was going to be able to you know it breaks you down and then it builds you up again into the, what they want you to be and I always I kind of already felt like you know I I need to be built up I needed to kind of evolve and grow as a person so that I was I felt like all right all right I have a blank slate you can build me and mold me into what you want me to be and I felt like that was an advantage for my part and then I wanted to kind of just commit to whatever role I was given. I didn't go in with an open job entry. I went in with a job or a kind of a set for myself. I wanted to make sure I was comfortable with whatever role I was going to be in within the Air Force. And so I kind of went in as like an aviation. I had an aviation job already kind of lined up. And so I wanted to be able to kind of set my sights and be able to be committed to that role. I wanted just to do that and kind of 
navigate my journey discreetly until I found my footing. But again, joining at a at a later age, 26, I already, I already kind of stuck out from the crowd. Uh, I think naively thinking that I was going to be able to discreetly find my way under the radar wasn't didn't exactly uh, happen according to that my my initial plans. But that's what I wanted wanted to do. So, did you feel that sense of family and maybe camaraderie? that you were missing? Yeah, I think in tech school, once I got to tech school and everything like that, I started to find my niche a little bit better, being able to kind of communicate more with some people, maybe around my age group and also around my maybe similar interests that I had. At the time, I was able to find a little bit more solid footing. Once I got to like my tech school, I felt like that was a good transition period because I was one step closer to my duty base. I found that to be a, a good time. Although you get put in different situations with, with people, I didn't exactly have the best roommate. <laughs> um, and so you know how that could be when you have mm-hmm. a roommate that is a total polar opposite. And so <laughs> it was a it was a very uh, it was an experience that I, I learned from in regards to how to handle situations where maybe people don't have the, their best your best interests in mind. But at, at the same time, it was a good experience of being in a new area and being able to to kind of you know kind of already. I, I still have some friendships I, from tech school that I that I that I keep in touch with. So from that aspect, it was a it was a good experience, and I was able to mm-hmm. kind of um, forge some new bonds at that point. I'm smiling because the shitty roommate experience is so universal, regardless of your your branch of service. I think we all know how that feels. Yeah, yeah, I had a, yeah, I had my roommate. Uh, he was in a leadership position, and so he uh, he didn't he, he didn't model his behavior that way, and so he used to blame a lot of stuff on me, well, like room cleanliness and everything like that, and and smoking and I'm like I don't even smoke so I don't know why you know I don't know why you would think I'm be smoking in the room but uh, yeah so eventually eventually he uh got reprimanded for some of the stuff that he was blaming on me but the only reason why he got reprimanded was because I finally spoke up because I I think my behavior which I reflect back on now I'm not, I don't like confrontation I, I think I learned that from an early age I don't like to speak up for myself so much because when I have spoken up in the past, I'm routinely dismissed. And so when you feel like you're routinely dismissed, you just kind of feel like, okay, I just, I just shouldn't speak up Mm -hmm. because nothing's going to change anyways. And so I think I, at that point, once I was starting to get reprimanded for my roommate's behavior, that's when I was like, I had to, you know, provide evidence of, you know, contrary to what was being done. And once, you know, some of that, came about and I was apologized to and everything like that. I think that's when it was like, okay, well, maybe things will be different in the Air Force. And so it was like, you know, that was that was a good experience for me at, at that time. That is so interesting that such a small moment could be so pivotal in your life. And it's over something yeah. as dumb as cigarettes and a bad roommate. I can't imagine how that must have felt to finally put down your shield and your sword and your mask that you'd been wearing since childhood and finally stand up for yourself. How did it make you feel? I definitely was still in the mindset of trying to be positive. I had mm-hmm. a you know, optimistic attitude and I knew I was just counting down the days to be able to get my duty station and you know, I looked at it just as just 
an obstacle along the way okay. um, that I was able to overcome. And so I, I still try to carry that positive attitude forward. That's incredible. You had a complete hard reset for your mindset. Yeah. It was, yeah, like you said, it was, it was a, to me, I was more, it was definitely a forced mindset. I did not want mm-hmm. to carry a, a negative vibe. And so I think when you kind of practice positivity, that breeds over. And so I was kind of that mindset where I just, I routinely just trying to practice positivity and, and uh, kind of bring in a, you know, bringing good energy. So was that hard to do at first? Was it oh, yeah. hard to, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was very, uh, <laughs> but also, but also I had experience to kind of go back on. I mean, I had had to do that at a really young age, forcing positivity when I didn't feel that way. And uh, being able to mask some of that stuff as well, you know, I was able to kind of revert back to that. Some stuff, a lot of stuff that I had suppressed kind of came easy in that sense as well. That's such a testament to your inner strength and mental toughness. What would you say it was like when you did finally get to your first duty station after tech school? So when I got to my duty uh, station, you know, I was introduced to my my uh, fellow colleagues at that time. And so it was a shop of like, you know, six, seven people. And we were high ops tempo. We were deploying routinely at that time because it was like 2009. When I got there, it was gung-ho. I was motivated. I, wa- I wasn't one of those people that were going to shy away from being deployed. I wanted to deploy. I wanted to go downrange. I wanted to experience the gauntlet of challenges that were going to be afforded to me i think within like a year of being there i was already within eight months of being there i was already deployed down range um taking my cdc's um kind of going through the gauntlet at that time so you were the model airman then this assault happened and you changed can you take us through that to your level of comfort of course i, I guess leading up to it a little bit i had just recently uh, uh completed some professional development training um, base. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of, you know, weight off my chest. And I had actually, prior to then too, was working, had worked, recently worked through sexual harassment that I had when I was downrange on a deployment where somebody had, had uh, decided they wanted to gratify themselves in the shower stall next mm-hmm. to me when I was trying to get ready for work. And I brought back trust issues I had being molested by my babysitter at the time we're growing up and so it, i was having night terrors that was battling through and and at that time and sleep deprived and trouble concentrating and it took effect on i mean at that point and so i worked on that when i got back it was i was making solid progress and stuff like that and i was kind of rewarding myself i was going out to a party you know now now at that point in time i was going out to that party, kind of rewarding myself for the hard work I've kind of maybe put my, you know, kind of gone through. Mm-hmm. And the vibe at the party when I was there was just kind of off a little bit. And I was thinking to myself, maybe it's just off because I'm already buzzed to begin with. And I was trying to unsettle the nerves and being there. And so I was already drinking. And I was kind of uh, kind of working through that. And then, you know, kind of mingling uh, back and forth with some people, acquaintances I had known and stuff like that. And then I think probably, I don't know how much time I last, maybe 40, 30, 45 minutes or something like that. But at that point, I was starting to feel, okay, I probably drank a little too much than I, than I should have. So I was starting to feel a little, uh, little oozy, a little bit, a little bit uh, unsettled. 
wasn't at the blackout stage or anything like that, but I definitely was at the intoxication stage at that point. I was by myself. I don't know how I kind of, I think I just wanted to get my bearings at that point. And so I had kind of uh, got away from party a little bit. And then all of a sudden, I think I heard her this brought up in sport classes was sometimes people can smell fear or maybe not fear, but they can, predators can sense opportunity. Right. Or vulnerability. Yeah. Vulnerability. And so mm-hmm. I had put myself in, I say I, because that's how I felt going through therapy and stuff like that. I had been, I had gotten into a situation where I was alone and I had this guy never seen before in my life crew cut kind of frat boy type and he just immediately didn't even say a word to me just a cold slot slow, cold glaze came across his face mm-hmm. and uh he just reached his hand into my uh into my my shorts uh that i was wearing at the time to to start fondling me and I, I had told myself over the years, if anything similar had ever occurred like that again, there wouldn't be any, I wouldn't be frozen. I wouldn't, you know, be startled. I wouldn't be in shock. I would immediately go into physically assault that person. And I was doing none of that. At that point, I was startled. I was frozen in time. I can't believe what was happening to me. Like I, kind of kind of retracing what I was thinking, you know, I can't believe this is happening again. What did I do to get this impression that I wanted this? Where's any where's everybody at? And at that point I was starting to already black out at the same time. I I maybe because of anxiety as well, because of what was happening in a combination mm-hmm. of alcohol. And I remember my pants being unzipped. I, thankfully, I don't remember everything that occurred. I do remember the last as he was from behind me. I had already at that time, I, how timing works out mysteriously is right before all that happened, I had already called the cab as well because I was not, safe to drive i knew that and so i was trying to get a a ride back well i came to afterwards with my uh, pants around my ankles and i heard my name being called from a a ways away and that i was my my ride was there i don't know to this day how i got back to my room and everything like that my place and um I was able to get the cab, get to my room, my place, and woke up at about maybe three thirty, three a.m. in the morning, sometime early in the morning, with my head just above water and about to full of blood, my cell phone just kind of hanging to the side, my pants just all all bloodied, and I merely thought most uh, range of emotions coming through at that point were I wish I was not up at this time. I wish I just drowned in that bathtub to 
eventually numbing myself to what had happened because I needed to be ready for, for duty and not tell anybody that it just happened. I just kind of reverted back uh, to that mindset of being a kid mm-hmm. and not, not wanting to tell anybody. I'm so sorry. What was it like to this nightmare just happened and you had to go to work like it happened? You know, as much as we try to suppress things, as much as we try to numb ourselves out, which I had done for on time, very, I think probably pretty proficiently, our body, uh, there's, you know, the body uh, keeps the score. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. my body was definitely keeping the score pretty immediately, a lot more immediately than I give it, I give it credit for. I think it was that added sense of betrayal and shame and embarrassment that I was feeling overcome with because I looked at the military as like a chance of a new support system, mm-hmm. a chance of being growing and a safe harbor. Your uh, your fellow women, uh, you know, your brothers and sisters are not going to do something like that to you. They're there to support you and to help you and stuff like that. That can that cannot happen. Why would anybody want to, you know, hurt you like that? <laughs> That's kind of the night that naiveness that I uh, kind of uh, had. People would joke around and stuff like that, but that's not going to, people are not actually going to act on their intuitions or their, you know, do something that is going to profoundly harm somebody. Why would somebody want to do something like, you know, why would the military, why would the military have people like that? And so that's, mm-hmm. looking back, I don't, I was very naive at that point. That's how, it, but that's how I felt. And it, I, uh, Quickly, my body was telling me that this was something I needed to release, and I was releasing it in all types of ways through drinking, self-medicating, and overeating. I did not want to work out at that time. I did not because you know how military readiness, fitness is is definitely uh, stressed upon. I had no desire to be around other guys. I had no desire to work out especially in a, in a large group of guys. And so I would make up excuses for why I couldn't go. Some of them were, were uh, legit, like vertigo. I was having trouble with the vision and stuff like that, staying balanced. I bring that out. Looking back, I bring some of that. I attribute some of that to this, the anxiety of what I was dealing with. And what I thought was maybe some vertigo was just added to anxiety. But I would bring up some of those reasons why I'd have to go to flight med or something like that to go get seen. Other reasons were I just, you know, I, I, I would try to find any reason I could, I could at that time to get out of doing any kind of organized group fitness because it, the added stress and anxiety there, I was willing to go through any kind of punishment, any kind of discipline that I needed to just to get out of that because I thought that was a safer route than to expose it the truth because the, the environment and the culture and past experiences had told me that that was correct. And so my body was bailing me at the wrong time I, I, I took it as. Did anyone in your shop notice this dramatic change in you? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, it was kind of, you know, I tried to do my best to mask my stuff I was going through. But I just matter of just honesty and because 
our trauma could be messy and everything like that. One of the symptoms that I had started to have was uh, incontinence at my time. And from, from the, from the nightmares, I would do my best. I thought to clean up and make sure I was good to go at all times. But then I had a supervisor kind of took me aside like, Hey, people are noticing like your hygiene and stuff like that is, is kind of, you know, it needs some improvement and stuff like that. Is everything okay? Everything. And this individual was a good person. I was probably the one person at that time where I, although he was, that person was a male, I could probably talk to, but even at that point, telling them anything around um, just like, yeah, hey, my bad. I don't know what happened. I have cats. <laughs> And so maybe the cats has got in my uniform and stuff like that. And that must be the the reason that my hygiene just smells a little bit off. I'll make sure I get that all washed and everything's all good. And but like that, my my weight gain had been probably pretty apparent as well. Cause like I said, I had no uh, no motivation or desire at that point to try to improve my appearance. Cause I feel like mm-hmm. at that time my appearance was what got me into the, the situation. And so a lot of that had come to a front and then my lack of concentration and irritability were some other factors that people probably had noticed as well. And so mm-hmm. and all that is taken to effect. People don't want that negative energy around them. And so definitely slowly try to slowly create the culture. Of, I don't know. Have you seen the movie Easy A? With, yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Easy A, I kind of, that, yeah the culture of whispering and mm-hmm. people making up rumors and stories about you that kind of slowly the culture was there to that was created and so yeah that's kind of where I was at at that point the, the PTSD really came after you all at once yeah the in terms of the you know diagnosis was chronic PTSD borderline personality mm-hmm. disorder uh, major depression all that kind of good all the all the all the goodies that we get yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty much attributed to me um and so I believe I really believe that some of that stuff could have been mitigated if I would have had a if I would have a support system in place where I were um somebody instead of looking at me as just as a human fail or just treated me as a person and wasn't there to judge me, but was actually there to, with the input. I needed, I needed some empathy at that time. Really was somebody there that I could, I could trust. And, but at the same time, I don't know if I was, I don't know if I would have trusted anybody at that time either, because I felt like I was being filled by the military and, and let alone by my distrusting environment that I had at the time. So I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel like I was safe in general. Yeah. When you go through that kind of trauma as a child, your feelings of safety are impaired. You feel like you can't trust other people, but you also feel like you can't trust your own judgment. You can't really trust yourself. I think that was the big thing right there was the whole questioning. I was, I had initially throughout the years, kind of, I had gone through a lot of times where I was always questioning my judgment, always Mm -hmm. not self-assured. And you know, that leads into breeds into self-confidence issues. And that was the way, way of me joining was to kind of regain that trust, rebuild that trust with authority figures and, um, and uh, being around people like triggers, like aggressive personalities, confrontational figures, those kind of personalities very much make me uneasy 
because I, I clam up, I really just kind of go back to self-retreat mode. That's what I like to initially do. Um, and I was trying to break that. I was mindful that I needed to kind of break away from that and I needed to um, grow professionally and personally as a person. And that's what I had wanted to largely get out of my military service too, was to grow as a person in, in that regard. Could you explain what it was like to try and navigate your days afterward with the military rumor mill churning as it does, where people don't know this awful thing just happened to you? They see that you've changed, but they're just kind of filling the blanks in with a bunch of nonsense. I really wasn't. I wasn't living. (laughs) I wasn't handling that um, at all. I I don't know how I got through the last year before I was mm-hmm. I was med boarded out. I was self medicating. I was drinking. I was eating, overeating. I think the saving grace that I had at the time was I had my uh, you know my my wife mm-hmm. that was there with me. Kind of saw the daily struggles that I was going through, and she was very concerned about me. I also had a. Uh, a newborn at that time too. She was um, two at that time, pretty much when I was going through the thick of it. Well, actually one, I guess one and a half or so when I was going through the thick of it. It was really tough. I uh, managed somehow to get through the days. I think leadership become became less dependent on me. They knew that I was having to see somebody at that same time because I had attempted suicide towards the end of 14 because again i i would rather die at that point i I would rather die than to kind of come clean about everything i was going through i felt that as a sense of weakness and shame and i was like you know what there's no weakness and shame and somebody not knowing the truth i was definitely not getting through it successfully in any type of way and my last year were a period of stints in and out of um, impatient yeah. So it was uh, definitely um, added to that aura of this person, something's wrong with him. It's his, he's got a mental issue. We don't need that type of person in our military. That's the, mm-hmm. the vibe. I'll share this real quick. In my own personal mental health struggle, I'd say my parents are fairly religious. And after an attempt on my own life, My dad was like, you know, if you do something like this, Mm -hmm. you'll go to hell. And I remember looking at him emotionlessly and I was like, hell would be better than this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the sad thing is you, we feel that way, but we, it's, it feels almost like, it feels like mission impossible to get somebody to understand what, what you mean by when you say that, like, you're already in hell. You already feel like you're in hell. If hell is anything like this, then I'm okay. I don't feel like I have an option. And if there is an option, I have not seen the light of day. Growing up in a, in a Christian household myself, I, uh, you know, for several years felt so disconnected from the church, even mm-hmm. growing up as a kid, because like, you know what, going through sexual abuse for several years, like I've asked the Lord for help. I've, I read, I prayed, I've, prayed for to not wake up and feel the way that I feel and the Lord is not listening to my prayers and what I would like so if I if I you know what is God going to do with to me to 
kind of make me not feel the way that I'm feeling right now. And so I almost felt safer in the hands of, the, of uh, you know, of hell than I would did in God's country, quote unquote. And so for me, I was personally okay with that. And having a religious mother that I had no trust, very manipulative person, I was okay with that thought of being in a dark place because I was already in a dark place and in, in quote unquote, again, God's country. And I didn't, I felt, I've actually felt safer probably in the despairs of death. I very much felt that way because the, the dichotomy was just so confusing that this entity that I'm supposed to go to for healing and salvation is letting this happen to me repeatedly throughout life. And there's just, there was no explanation. It made no sense. Why did this keep happening to me? But when you were in therapy, was there anybody that ever asked, hey, what's going on with you? You know, aside from that person that you mentioned a little earlier? Kind of, well, I guess we'll start with a little bit of the um, the supervision, the kind of experience a little bit. And so going through the gauntlet of, you know, the tidal wave of shame, humiliation, Mm -hmm. self-love, I had started to crash over me. Military culture, as you all know, is a culture of mission readiness, a culture of show no weakness, a culture of suck it up and move on. And so there's not a lot of as many as many CBTs, as many stand down days as we do and as are done in the military. It's I I always found it much more for show than authentic authentic. And I uh and it definitely was reflective of that in regards to how we treat each other in the, you know, in the day to day. And so 99% of the engagement I did have was like, what's wrong with you? And very dismissive, very, mm-hmm. very critical, very judgmental. And even if it was meant in a therapeutic way, the, the tone and the delivery of it left it to, to feel like it was anything but that. It was definitely not going to generate a receptive response from Mm -hmm. someone like me to feel like I was in a safe space to open up and talk about that. And I actually had a, uh, had a female woman in leadership, had direct supervision over me. That even point blank told me like when I had, uh, when I had just came back from a suicide attempt and, um, being impatient, which he didn't know, I never disclosed to her at that time. She still doesn't, I don't think, even know that incident had happened. And she just point blank told me like, hey, everybody knows something's going on with you. That it's a you problem. You either got a mental health issue or, you know, some kind of legal problem going on. Somebody knows it's, you know, something's wrong with you. So either you got to tell me or you're going to get some paperwork. Wow. Knowing knowing that, that person's personality at that time, I was not surprised by it. And it was very affirmative why I would not tell a soul what was going on. I was willing to take whatever kind of LOC, LOR, um, any kind of discipline I needed to just to not tell leadership. I would rather die than to feel that added sense of shame and guilt and humiliation. Like it was just another added sense of weakness. Like I am weak. It is a, it is a new problem. I am the problem. And that's how I felt. And that person now works as a mental health professional. And so that uh, was definitely, you know, kind of looking back on things now too, it was just like, add a sense of perplexity of 
I did not feel like I was in a, in a safe, trusting space. Oof, well, hopefully that person has had a complete change in attitude now that they're a mental health provider. I mean, we can only hope. But then also we have to add the factor of you being male to this situation and just the different treatment that you're going to get based on stigma alone. I asked myself a lot about a lot about that over the years because I've seen how there's a very just when I at my immediate surroundings, my base, and also just in my community, how there's a very large portion of behavior that's geared towards men than there are women. I think women don't even, I don't think women receive enough re- support and, um, and encouragement and understanding to begin with. But in regards to just the initial responses of the smirks, the glares, the change in tones and how people talk to you. Once they realize, okay, like that person has something going on, they tr- almost treat you like a cancer patient. Like, yeah, like there's this added sense of like shame or guilt in how they talk to you. Um, and that makes you, this the added sense of uncomfortability, added sense of mistrust, at least on my part is is there. So that's kind of from a male perspective, how I, how, how I was treated from, from that point. But also there were the smirks Brought, up, brought off the vibe that I was a weak, I was a weak male and that I needed to kind of somehow, deme- I was demasculated. I needed to uh, toughen up and, and suck it up and rub some dirt on it. And that was very, it's very much the vibe in the community that I'm at, that I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of trauma Olympics. Yeah. It, well, it's especially disheartening when, you know, you tell other people maybe they've gone through some sexual abuse as well. And then they like, oh, well, I was abused as a kid. You, I understand what you're going going through when you when you see that they don't. The added impact of, what I, uh, of what's going through. Every, every situation, every case is different. I'm not going to pretend to know some of the stuff you, you've dealt with. But mm-hmm. I think the added sense of hostility, just at least on my end, that I've kind of have seen from a lack of uh, understanding from the LGBT community as well has been very shocking at times, but also mm-hmm. at the same time, nothing shocks me anymore. Oh my God. I totally understand that. And it's just the the weirdest thing. We're caught up in our, we're all caught up in our immediate lived experiences that right. we mm-hmm. to have any kind of, un, uh, any kind of insight or empathy or self-awareness about, a, about somebody else's house, you know, the shoes that they have to go through. And so, it's uh, not been exactly eye-opening for me because, again, I I've lived uh, I lived through some of that growing up, but it was the reaffirmation of that that was mm-hmm. really disheartening for me. That also kind of I think brought out that added sense of like I just don't want to be here on this earth. <laughs> what was it like? Well, like I would say that there needs to be a culture change as a whole, and not just towards. MST survivors, but toward sexual abuse as a whole. There's just so much joking about it that I can't even begin to unpack. And I only know about it from the Air Force perspective and the few years that I spent around a bunch of Navy EOD guys. And Mm. again, it's the same sort of sick humor 
it's a humor that does not realize that there are real people behind this stuff that you are just throwing out there willy-nilly. One thing I had noticed that always bothered me was every mustache march, guys would walk around proudly with these huge grins on their faces saying that they looked like they harmed children. And I never really knew what to say. And I would just look at them like, what the hell is wrong with you? Why would you enjoy saying that you look like that? And no one nipped it in the bud. No one said anything to them. And even if the person that was on the receiving end of this joke, and they might have been a survivor of something like that, they knew not to rock the boat. Yeah. Which is telling about the kind of community that we have within our military. I largely attribute that to a combination of like social media gratification mm-hmm. and the culture that has been just breeded into society nowadays where the it more inf- inflammatory, the more disgusting, the more obscene remarks that you say, the more reactions you get, the more reactions you get, the more likes you get, the more likes you get, the more feedback you get. And you feel like a sense of that's what people want to hear. That's what people want to see. And so I think there's some added sense there where people kind of take that into their own personal lives as well. And that's how they, and that's what they, they like, it's the like culture, it's the, mm-hmm. you know, the content culture that they're in, but also it's the same time of accountability as well. I mean, we mm-hmm. have people in leadership positions that we put there that are living, breeding examples of predators to, and it's hard to talk to people about that because there is some kind of very big disconnect in society and how and in, in who we put into positions of power and then them and then people not understanding why somebody like myself or you or anybody else mm-hmm. would feel uncomfortable talking about our our lived experiences or we would feel uncomfortable talking to, you know, or speaking up about it, something that would make us uncomfortable is because it's condoned. And so how, like you said, how you get, how do you change that culture is I, I really, for me, a big thing about it is changing the, how faith-based communities uh, speak to their congregations. One thing that I've really noticed in our communities as well, there's such a big correlation between mm-hmm. what's taught in faith and also they breathe that they blur the lines so bad um, into social culture as well and in social belief structure. And so I um I believe that there needs to be a I there needs to be some kind of come you know, come to Jesus meeting really in regards to unif- unification on some certain issues uh, that can make people feel comfortable around each other again. And I don't really know how you get to that aspect because I think one, you need to, you need to get people to admit that, realize that there's a problem with how they talk mm-hmm. and how they, how they talk and how, you know, they joke and how, and who they, you know, in positions they take. And I don't know how you, how you get somebody to realize there's a problem when they're they don't believe there's a problem and so mm-hmm. it's i really believe that that issue is, is just going to get worse until somebody until more 
people go through those lived experiences. We are such a, in an instant gratification culture that people don't take the time and have the empathy to care about each other until they actually have gone through that personal experience. Mm-hmm. It's the mentality of it doesn't matter until it affects me. Which, yeah. I mean, I'm even guilty of, I felt that way about <laughs> MSD because I didn't even know what it was until it happened to me. Could you tell me what it was like to try and get back to some semblance of normal when you did finally separate from the Air Force? Um, it was def- definitely challenging for mm-hmm. uh, a good four years. On and off, there's there's weeks. There's weeks I don't remember that they were blur. I went through a couple more suicide attempts after leaving the service several more inpatient facility treatments. I, I found that peer, peer support groups were really good. I had a support group that I was at a, at a VA in Kansas a while back mm-hmm. that uh, was very, that was beneficial towards me that I was able to, you know, I, I saw people that were in the service in the seventies and eighties that had gone through the similar, similar um, experiences I did. It was an affirmation of one aspect of like, their thoughts, their mood, their disposition were pretty much exactly reflecting um, how I was feeling and, and, and looking at myself in the mirror to how I felt and how I was probably showing to people at the same time. We were emulating very similar dispositions. Um, but also at the same time, it was very reflective and introspective. Uh, gave me some introspection. Like since I had a daughter at that time, I didn't want my daughter. I, that was that was a big motivation for me at that time too, was I didn't want my daughter to grow up without a dad. I needed to take some personal accountability for, for that aspect. I did not want to be, you know, in that condition 20 years down the road, I was either Mm going to have to find a way to get, to get through this, or I was, I wanted to die right there. I needed to find somehow, some way um, therapeutically to, to deal with, to deal with my issues um, that was Mm -hmm. having. And, um, it offered good introspection for me at that aspect. At that point in time, like I needed to get my stuff together. I was I was going to be the same place twenty five uh, years later if somehow I had a, if somehow I had um you know managed to survive. So I that would it offered a good uh, reflection for me as well. I learned to be more self dependent on my own uh, my own care because the VA taught me that uh, they a lot of people that were there in the military were people that you know were retired and they had no business working in the behavioral therapy background at all i had some bad experiences uh with with other treatment where it was pretty much like the objective was like you are the problem you're the reason why this happened i had a i had a instance where i had gone to a facility in alabama it was the first time i'd been to a facility that was not either court ordered or i hadn't been led into a facility in, in a, the back of a police car in handcuffs because uh, I, I had not wanted to go. I didn't, had no intention of wanting to get treatment. I didn't want to get treatment. I wanted to die. And so I, I viewed it as a big accomplishment because I, I voluntarily chucked myself into a treatment facility to try to work on trying to get better. And the first thing the lady told me when I was there was like, I see your VA shopping. What, you know, why, what, what is it that you're needing? Oh, not, not needing, but what is it that uh, you're looking for now? 
pretty much like, you know, putting me on the spot. Like I was just looking for like attention and like Damon, like had she even read my case history and she ever, had she even taken the time to introduce herself or say hi to me or anything like that. It was very much point blank. I was just looking for attention and automatically my defensive front was up and I shut down and I was like, I'm not, I don't want to do any treatment here. I just want to go. And then they were startled four weeks into it when I wasn't getting any better because I had shut down. I didn't want to be there. Then the VA uh, psychiatrist in ter- ter- charge of treatment there called me a coward and called me weak for wanting to leave treatment facility because I told her that I wasn't getting any better. And I think she was waiting for a reaction from me at that time. Um, one, and I don't think she... Was going to, she wasn't going to get the reaction she wasn't going to get. I was going to get a felony charge for reaching over the desk and going and costing her. Uh, that's that was my first thought was like I viewed her as an assailant and I was I was going to protect myself. It was a way for me to protect myself. But the thing about it is I was on my, I was on the phone with my wife at the time, just a short while ago, and so I had that in the back of my mind, and that was the only thing that stopped me from from taking any kind of very bad impulsive reaction um and so i had told my wife the experience i had just had and long story short the the woman had to um had to, she had to apologize she apologized to my wife on the phone for for on uh, the way that she uh, had talked to me during the one-on-one and she uh, uh realized that she had made a mistake and uh she released me from the program but all that you know happened, but and it was never, never made into the case notes, never made it into the my file or anything like that. So it was just another affirmation. I can't count on the VA to, to help me at all because they don't take accountability for what they say or what you know for making things worse either. So they have an obscene amount of power to be able to kind of control the narrative of what your personal makeup looks like. And so I told my wife, "There's not, I'm never going to seek treatment again at the VA because I don't even if." If I'm on death's door, just let me die. I would not go back to a VA treatment facility because of that that bad experience. Um, but I did, thankfully, I've uh, you know I found somebody here in town locally now in the community that I can um, I can talk to, and I'm starting to build up a a, a better rapport with now. But she uh, has shown a lot of uh, keen insight and awareness and understanding. Big thing mm-hmm. is. That makes me feel seen and and understood for the first time here and where I live at for the first time in a in a long while. So it's a it's been a been a period of roller coasters and mm-hmm. um, I was at one point up to two hundred and nine eight two hundred eighty five pounds. My weight was because again I was just slowly just trying to kill myself one one way or another, and I my addiction, my impulse control can be used for good things, I guess, at the same time. And so I, I eventually worked my way down to 165 pounds. And then I've kind of gone back and forth, gone back up to 230 pounds, and now kind of settled up. Now I'm back down to like 180-ish. I like to try to find that healthy medium. But the problem with diet control, regulatory control for these, from my point of perspective is I don't get any kind of therapeutic endorphin release from working out actually brings a level of anxiety to me to be around other people and to to be sweating and stuff like that. But I know mindfully, keeping my mindfulness there, I know it is good for me health-wise and I know it's for mobility and stuff like that, but I don't get any kind of enjoyment out of it or anything like that. But I, I know it's something I need to maintain and, and do. But 
I think that's for a lot of people too. And if it was something we enjoyed, it was something that we found that was physically, mentally, or something beyond physically beneficial, then we would maintain that. We would maintain that. But for some of us, you know, we just don't get any kind of, we don't get a lot of enjoyment out of it. I can't tell you how I feel seen right now. You are the first person that I've met that feels this way. And I can't tell you how many people since, I don't know, maybe my last year in the Air Force, that was 2015, they would just tell me, oh, go to the gym or go for a run and tell me that that would make me feel better. But it it never did. I would get such bad bad anxiety. I would panic and I would just feel like garbage afterward. And no one believed me. Everyone was like, no, endorphins happen when you run. If you feel freaked out at a gym, why don't you go to a women's only gym? And I'm like, it's not the the people attending the gym. It is the gym itself giving these issues. I Wow, I feel seen. I I can't believe this. I've never heard this from another person. It was the gym, is in this the crowd of people. Yes, there would be times where I just have to sit down, like at a bench, and like my hands. Yes, oh my gosh, that's just chiding, and and the comment then that people are just tired, like, hey, no, it's you just didn't hydrate enough. Like, no, I know, I know, (laughs) I hydrated before I came to them. Like, it's not yes. a hydration issue. It, and you just, but you just kind of shrug it off. Like, yeah, that's probably what it is. And mm-hmm. you don't want to go into your whole diatribe of be like, you don't understand what you're talking about, but whatever. That's something I've just had to slowly assess myself throughout the day and understand um, mm-hmm. what I'm, what I'm physically and mentally capable of achieving that day. And that's kind of what I work with. I would say even now that I'm back to a place of mental stability, I'm still somewhat reluctant to go back to the gym. And I I really think it's just because going to the gym for me is a mental workout before it's even a physical workout. So by the time I get there, I am sure I'm going to have used up so many of my coping skills that by the time I, I get on the treadmill or wherever, I'm already going to be tired. So I I just have to tell you, I feel so validated right now. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, in a sad kind of way, I'm I'm kind of glad that you feel validated. Like, I'm I'm glad that you kind of understand that because it's, (laughs) it's, it's, I can't find anybody that really understood. It's hard to, I haven't had anybody in the community that I'm at right now that's been able to really understand that or at least convey to me that they they understand that and so whenever i've had the uh strength to uh muster up the courage to even talk to somebody about their uh any issues that i have mm-hmm. going on the common response i've ever i've you know received is you know i knew there was something wrong with you or i knew <laughs> i knew you i knew you were a little bit off those negative kind of t- and it's for mm-hmm. people that should really know better and it's it's really, it just adds another layer of um, insecurity and self-doubt. Yeah. And I've had a withdrawal from, you know, activities that I, that were therapeutically good for me, but it were just, it was not a, it was not in a healthy environment with healthy people. Mm-hmm. Um, just seeing how some people, when you're able to mask at times stuff that you have going on and you see how they see how some people just like laugh and just like talk mm-hmm. about other people that have 
you know, trauma issues going on as well. It is very, it makes you, it almost provides a, a weight off my, like it gives me a weight off my chest. Like I'm glad I like that. I, I trusted my instincts or that I would not convey to you or open up to you about anything because the way that I hear you talking right now is like, yeah, it's, it, uh, provides actually a sense of calm uh, there mm-hmm. that, I, that I can trust myself to to not open up, but also provides affirmation like, yeah, I'm not, you know, again, I'm not in a healthy environment. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's almost like you're living maybe a triple or quadruple life. Like you you make choices of just how much of you is actually living in any given point during the day and it's it's yeah. it takes so much mental energy to to just yeah. have to go through that kind of thought process it's it's a mental obstacle course because i've tried to compare it to like being in acting school at times too because you have to take on so many different roles throughout the right. day and your mind mentally this is so sometimes is so tired of having to juggle those roles and you don't even understand the same at sometimes like your body can only handle so much of that as mm-hmm. well. Um, and uh, there are certainly a lot of times when my body was, was breaking down because of the added anxiety of trying to add, trying to play those different roles that I, my body was not equipped to handle anymore. Now with, with where you are, where you're getting back to stability, how would you say that MST has impacted your relationships friendships with maybe even just your wife it sounds like she was just oh, yeah. this huge support throughout all of this oh yeah i'm definitely encountered a lot of marital struggles um mm-hmm. as most people going through situations like this uh i there were times there where i pleaded with my wife to leave me to divorce me because uh, i didn't want her to see me go through things that i was going through and i i wanted her to be in a quote-unquote normal relationship i wanted her to that would just tell her to divorce me you need to be someone that can help that is you know able to work able to you know have confidence in themselves and somebody that's it doesn't feel like a complete train wreck and um i guess part she um dated on and off a while uh before we got married and so she knew what i was like before we got married she knew the person that um i really was and she knew my some of my background as well and so i think that played a part in um her staying with me is like she she had faith that i you know i could uh i could get better and um get to get to a, a spot where i felt like a, protect, a productive member of society again and not live in such a shame and guilt and uh depression mm-hmm. um, where it was just consuming me um whole and so that was you know part of the marital issues there and then yeah, right now I've I've definitely taken at a purpose in service of others. I've gone through similar struggles. I right now it's very odd being in, in a community. I live in a you know military community as well, but my role where I kind of do behavior analysis and intervention stuff, I've actually had a come into contact with a couple couple MST uh, survivors as well that very much in the mindset of what I was four years ago. And um, I definitely, I take a lot of a um, reward in being able to connect with them and 
be able to leave some of those instances and conversations where they tell me like, Hey, this is the first time I've, you know, felt seen. I've, you know, and I felt hurt. I try to get my husband to understand and he tries, he really tries and everything like that. But I feel like, you know, first time I've, I've actually been understood and, and seen in a while. And those kind of emotions run through me, like, okay, provides that added sense of you know, purpose. Like, okay, I'm, I'm here for, besides my daughter and everything like that, it provides that overwhelming mm-hmm. feeling of, of gratitude that I was able to help somebody else out and everything. So kind of in that place right now where gratitude, keeping my circle very small, because mm-hmm. that distrust is still very much there and that understanding from other people is just, it, society is just not there. So I keep my circle small, practice gratitude, mindfulness. And I actually, have you seen the movie um, uh, Devotion with uh, Jonathan Majors? I believe it came out in 2022. Oh, no. No, I hadn't heard of that and one. He's a pilot. And so he's he's like, I think the, it's a movie of the, um, he's like the first black naval pilot in the academy. Oh. So he's going through a lot of trials and tribulations with, with this quote unquote way man. And he has a scene in the movie where he has a daily motivational book of being able to keep him grounded and to keep him uh, motivated through the struggles that he's going through with racial discrimination and stuff like that. And so that just the daily motivational book that he has where he's actually reciting things that have been said to him that have caused him anger and caused him to feel like he wants to give up. He reversed that psychology and was able to like use that as that anger as motivation. I've used that kind of technique as well to have kind of flipped it like the negative stuff that have I've encountered. I actually have it in my closet area. I used to have little uh, sticky notes in my uh, my closet that coward, you're weak, you're you know, you're just a junkie. You're not gonna, you know, you're, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of just mean, insulting stuff that I support systems that uh, I I keep that as a daily motivational thing. Like I can't I can't let that define who I am. I use that from time to time when I feel like I need a you know a reset, a reboot, keeps me going. Yeah, that's, uh, if I'm remembering right, that's uh, opposite action. That's uh, from DBT, the dialectical behavioral therapy. Yeah. Um, It's very effective. It really is. It could be very awkward at times, too. It is. (laughs) I I actually forgot I had it in my closet one time, and I had contractors over at my house doing some uh, remodeling in my my, uh, second bathroom. And I remember just like, you know, being out with my dog and everything like that, taking care of him. And I had this guy just come back out to the room. It was kind of, he was very quiet all of a sudden. I was like, hmm, what's going on? I, I understand that I'm nervous too right now because I'm, you know, I have another person in my house, but I'm with my dog and everything like that. I'm trying to just kind of reflect on like, why did his aura and vibe and energy change? Like, oh, shoot, that's probably why. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, as soon as they left that that day, I just kind of took that down or anything like that. But it just added a confirmation as well. Like, hey, that's why you don't, that's why you keep your circle small. And that's why right. you, you don't bring up stuff because, you know, people are not going to understand. Yeah, absolutely. If there was anything you could say to the people that were gossiping and, and whatnot before you separated, is, is there something you would want to let them know? Yeah, I guess. Um, there's been a definitely a range of emotions. Five years ago, I would have, I would have said, "I can't wait till you die." <laughs> I, <laughs> I, yeah, just dishonestly, that that's what I would have, I would have said. But going through the range of involvement with my emotions to now being one that's just gratitude for each and every day, and thankful for for what I do have. It's one of, I hope that you've changed, um, and. 
I wish, I don't wish you any harm. I don't wish you the harm. I don't wish you the trauma. I don't wish any of your loved ones, the trauma, the impact and the, uh, harrowing, um, experiences of my family and I have had to deal with. I, I don't wish, I don't wish any of that. I'm my, my worst enemy. I wish that that guy kind of, you know, well, in a kind of a odd, um, sixth sense, just, uh, I feel kind of, you know, I kind of talking about saying that, but I don't wish any hate on, on that person. And I just, uh, I hope that, uh, that situation, if he's even thought about it for a single second of his, uh, of his life after that moment that, um, I hope that either he's changed or situations, karma seems to good karma, bad karma seems to work out in, in ways, the most mysterious ways for people. And so I, I wish that, you know, God and society just kind of uh, take care of that and, and whatever happens, happens, and I'm okay with mm-hmm. it. That's so powerful. That's so much growth. Well, it's it's definitely, it's certainly a lot of forced uh, growth because I, I can't live, I can't live in a constant state of hate and anger mm-hmm. and negativity. I've done that for several years. That culture of negativity and hate I know it all too well and I can't allow myself to get that point because I know what it does to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just have um, active mindfulness is, is what I choose to try to reflect now because I can't let myself get back to that place. Um, my daughter's my motivation and um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be like that. Hatred and anger is it's, it's poison for the soul. Is it really is? It's very hard to let go of that rage. I I can't even begin to explain what it was like to just be enraged all the time, but it would come out <laughs> in all of these odd ways. Yeah, yeah. And it was never that I was going to hit someone or do what they had done to me. It was I'm going to drink a whole bunch. Yeah, and you know, have a massive hangover for the next two days, and somehow that was me being angry. <laughs> and it was never about harming other people. It, it's when you go through something like that, you usually blame yourself and and turn it inward. Yeah, yeah, yeah it comes out. It comes out of all different types of shapes and form, mm-hmm. and so, and it's hard to get people to understand that. Like, in um, understand that our it's just hard to get people to understand that that's our way of, re- of therapy at that point in time. Mm-hmm. That's, that w- that is what we all, that's our safe harbor. That was something that made us, made us safe and, and also a, a defensive mechanism at the same right. time. And so it's hard to get people that have not gone through those shared experiences to understand. And I wouldn't want them to really understand no. because um, I wouldn't want anybody to go through uh, the mental and physical anguish that you know we were currently suffering so. yeah absolutely were, were there other techniques that you've incorporated throughout the day maybe breathing exercises yeah. different kind of grounding exercises which ones work the best for you people have talked about like you know art therapy before and mm-hmm. yoga and sleep but I, i've gone through the gauntlet trust me the gauntlet of techniques uh trying at uh, different facilities as well and i've tried to do the meditation and try to do the yoga you know, we talked about working out before. None of those stuck with me. None of those brought any kind of 
immediate release or anything like that. But I have learned to incorporate like breathing exercises, mindfulness, writing, therapy into my everyday kind of weekly activity when I feel like I need to recalibrate. And then also having my dog. I originally got him um, when I just got back from a deployment. My wife wanted to have dog. She wanted a pug. And I'm like, all right, yeah, that sounds good enough. I mean, it's a small dog and everything like that. Should be that, should be that bad, right? And so, but he's really turned to my uh, de facto emotional support animal over the years. Like, because there was a period of three or four years where I did not trust a single soul. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't want to be around my wife. I didn't want to be around my kid. I didn't want to be around anybody. I didn't want to, I didn't trust. I didn't feel comfortable. Uh, to be myself, like, because my mask was off at that point, I, I had to be vulnerable. And he was the only one uh, I felt like I could uh, feel safe around, like he wasn't going to judge me. He wasn't going to criticize me. He wasn't going to call me a coward, call me weak. And it was just me and him a lot of times throughout the day, always there with a, a face rub or always there was, you know, wanting to get pets, you know, as long as he was getting his food and water, he was a okay. <laughs> it's really what I needed. Even the condition that he's in right now, my daughter, my wife sometimes jokingly would say, you love him more than me. And it's not, you know, obviously not the case, but it's just that bond that we have. He's my ride or die. And so uh, having emotional like animal therapy is, is certainly something I wish the uh, air force and, all the military branches as a whole would actively look into incorporating more for some of their veterans that are going through post-traumatic uh, stress uh, difficulties. Dogs are just, they're pure love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they really are. You could just get out of bed and they're just ready to party. And it's <laughs> its so reaffirming and, and reassuring and just the strangest ways but they're and you know cats are the same way they're just pure love i have a siamese cat rescue siamese cat and she just she she goes along with the other i have a chihuahua too and she goes along with chihuahua <laughs> but she absolutely loves the pug and she will even though he's blind and deaf and up until a year ago he wasn't blind and so he still remembers her and so yeah uh, she'll give him face rubs and whenever we're gone i come back um she'll have been sitting with him the in front of the door kind of patiently just kind of oh, you know uh, with, with him to make sure he uh isn't overly anxious and everything like that so yeah they have a good, they have a good bond with all that you've conquered and seeing what changes the military is trying to implement whether it's through the executive order that president biden signed or the stand down days and all the little dog and pony shows what advice would you give to anyone that's considering joining the military from a personal perspective with my daughter i you know i had definitely gone through the evolving motions at, at the same time i think that um the executive order is certainly a positive stride there's more ground to cover i first and foremost i want my daughter to be happy I would be a supporter and I would love her and, and be proud of her um, no matter which um, career path she chose, as long as she's happy. And so that's from a family perspective for anybody else that's has a child that's worried about them. I would say that, you know, the, the military is certainly making active positive strides that are, should be commendable. Um, transferring to jurisdiction of um, serious crimes like sexual assault to train prosecutors is is a significant step towards, um, I think, justice, hopefully. But I think the real test is probably going to lie in the um, consistent implementation of these reforms as well. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Having these changes are moving the right direction, but military still needs to foster an environment where survivors. I don't always even like to say the word survivor for myself because I feel like it's it adds an added connota- connotation to myself. Like, um, you know, I'm still in that. Like, uh, I'm looking for empathy, and I'm I don't want to. I don't want somebody to feel like I'm looking for anything. I just I, I define myself. No, I think Lisa Furman kind of has that book out talking about Latina warrior. I like the warrior. I'm a fighter, you know, I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to let something define me. And so I'm a fighter. The military needs to continue to create that environment where fighters like myself um, feel supported and heard, not just, you know, legally from a legal aspect, but also emotionally and mentally as well. That continuous care is something that needs to continue to be developed and, and more resources poured into, because there's a lot of people that are like, your podcast, uh, Silenced Voices, there's a lot of silenced voices that are still out there that are going to continue to be that way because there's that culture of shame that we feel that is. Colonel Furman was my my detachment leader. I, she is an incredible woman. And yeah. just the, the strides she's taken in, in writing about her experiences and her speaking engagements, she's just a, a powerhouse of, of strength and inspiration yeah. for for so many of us yeah know? she's definitely uh just from my limited time and face-to-face with her yeah she's mm-hmm. certainly a, uh, a powerful person presence to be around and um uh she's definitely a great spokesperson for bringing awareness to trauma and so i i definitely have a lot of gratitude for all the work that she's doing and you now too you're involved in a nonprofit. did you want to share about that I actively uh, do work with an organization based out of Tampa, Florida. It's called Veterans Counseling Veterans. We do a lot of work with trying to highlight awareness about the uh, often dismissed and undertalked issue of military sexual trauma in the community for all branches. And we uh, highlight awareness. We want to also provide awareness, educational, therapeutic resources for any members that are um, looking to seek treatment for their trauma. We we feel that, you know, what there's um, a lot, lot of us, we only feel comfortable at times talking to other people that have gone through similar instances because those shared experiences that, sh- that people being able to understand their trauma can make a very meaningful impact that otherwise sometimes can't be can be uh, done in uh, the public sector or, or done at the VA times as well. And so um, it's been doing a lot of great work in, in generating awareness and providing ed- educational and uh, therapeutic resources to people, not only just in the Tampa area, but um, um, around the country. And so we have another convention coming up later on in 2024 in uh, St. Petersburg, probably be uh, during um, uh, April, I believe, is what we're looking at. And so Tony Williams, Ellsworth Williams, is the spearheader of the uh, organization, and he does a, a great job of reaching out to um, other veterans as well. And it's an organization I uh, truly uh, felt valued and understood. It's definitely a program that I would encourage somebody to, if they're looking to feel valued and feel connected in some way, shape, or form to the military community, veteran community, to look more, explore more into, and we BCV could use all the continued support that's needed. What was the name of it again? So when people can hear it mm-hmm. and find it yeah. online. Yeah, it's uh, Veterans Counseling Veterans Inc. Incorporated, INC. And so it's a organization that's based out of Tampa, Florida, but we have been holding our 
national conferences in St. Petersburg, Florida. Thank you so much. One final question for you. For someone that is in a dark place right now and they can't really see the light, what what advice would you give them or or what thing do you think would maybe help pull them out of it? Finding a purpose, looking for a higher purpose, did a lot of help for me. Somebody like me going through some of this, I've been through those, those dark times of death, the despair. The only thing that I was looking forward to was being buried six feet under. I had a pervasive appetite for self-destruction. I know what that's like. I know the triggers. I know the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment that is often displaced upon us by, you know, the military and in your community oftentimes too, where you don't feel understood. And you feel like there's no way out. I would just certainly encourage anybody feeling that that's in that dark place right now. There is hope. There is hope for another day, a time where you feel better where you, than what you do right now. Finding that higher purpose, whether it be something spiritual, a, you know, a daughter, a loved one, a daughter, a son, some kind of passion that you can find that you have for life. Working at that just day by day, sometimes, you know, oftentimes we'll be able to transform into other positive influences in your life as well. So I just want people to understand, don't give up hope. There is light at, at the end of the tunnel as long as you continue to seek it. You know, you're not alone in the struggle. Somebody out there in the world does care about you, does see you, does hear you, and there is hope. Well said. Well said. Well, thank you again for opening up and, and sharing your life's experiences with all of us. I, I definitely feel a, a kinship with you. There's a the book, um, Anne of Green Gables. They say kindred spirits. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely see that that light in you. And it's so inspiring to see that you've, you've come so far. And I wish you so much more growth and happiness in the future. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And let me just also... Thank you for, again, having this podcast and being able to have the willpower and strength to go through these podcasts. Only I'm only one of, of several that you've had to work with. And I can imagine the amount of strength at times that you kind of had to, you know, manage and work through with hearing some of these other people's similar experiences as well. So I wish you continued strength prayers as you continue to, to go through this and also sincere gratitude to thanks. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it, everyone. What a story, right? As we conclude today's impactful episode, I want to extend just my deepest gratitude to our guest, Tyler, who is a true warrior for sharing his journey and his triumphs and his fails with us. Your strength inspires us all to break the silence and continue to find resilience in the face of adversity. If this episode resonated with you, please share it on your social media platforms and let others know about the importance of amplifying these voices. Remember, your support can be a lifeline for someone else. Tune in next week as we'll bring you another compelling story. We'll be joined by a chaplain shedding light on their unique experience with MST. You don't want to miss it. Together, we can continue to break the silence. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating on our Facebook page or on Spotify. And I think also Amazon has a rating tool. This just helps the podcast get more visibility and seen by more people. And all we want to do is continue to share our message. 
Also with this episode, there will be a survey in the show notes. So go ahead and fill that out. Let us know how we're doing and let us know any changes we can make. I always appreciate the feedback. And as always, I invite you to stay safe, be kind, and take care. Have a great weekend, everyone. We'll see you next time.